looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. All right, welcome back to another episode of Make Money Make Sense. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte, and today joined by my co-host, DJ Smith. DJ, how are you doing today? Awesome, Dante. Always great to be with you. Yeah, glad to have you. Um, we've got a pretty busy week coming up and towards the end of the month. I know you're uh, going to walk 136 unit uh, this evening, and then I'm flying down later this week, and we've got about four tours set up, so some pretty exciting stuff. Uh, do you want to talk about uh, today's guest real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we found uh, Seth Bradley because uh, we actually invested in one of his deals. So really excited to bring him on. And uh, I say this about every guest, but we've had some really good ones. It's great. There's a lots of nuggets in here and uh, it's just going to be awesome. Awesome. Well, let's get right into the show. Alrighty, guys, welcome back to the show. Uh, this week, I'm joined with my co-host, DJ Smith. DJ, how are you doing today? Awesome. Great to be with you, Dante. Yes, thanks for coming in with us. Uh, this week's guest, we have uh, Seth Bradley. Uh, Seth is an attorney. He also has his own law firm, and he is a syndicator in the multifamily space. Seth, thanks for coming along this week with us. Would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Really appreciate it. Uh, quick turnaround. It's like, hey, come on the podcast. Boom, let's do it next week. I, I love oh, it. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah, man. So a uh, little bit about, about my background. I mean, I'm, I'm adopted. I was born in South Korea, and then I got adopted by two of the greatest folks in the world in a small, well, the smallest of small towns in, in Wadestown, West Virginia. I mean, there's literally, there's nobody within, um, you know, five football fields of, of my house growing up. Um, came from blue collar. My dad's a retired coal miner. My mom's a retired school teacher. And that, you know, that work ethic and that kind of mindset was actually instilled for me from the very beginning. So growing up, it was, it was all about, you know, get the best job possible. So I ended up going to medical school for a while because I thought in my mind, okay, that's being a doctor. Um, went to, went to med school for about a year and a half, a uh, little bit under a year and a half and literally just hated it. I was like, this is not what I want to do with the rest of my life. Got up in the middle class, left, and said, see ya, I don't know what I'm gonna do next, but I'm gonna figure it out. Uh, really just started getting my MBA at that point in time because I knew that would apply to anything. Um, and then I was still kind of in that, in that blue collar W2 mindset. It was just like, well, what's the next best job I can, I can get if I'm not gonna be a doctor? And that was becoming a lawyer. So I went to law school right after the MBA, uh, got my law degree, started working in big law, practiced for about six years at big law firms. Um, you know, the, the regular stuff, the bill in 2,200 hours, uh, a year, you know, having 40,000 bosses, you know, just working crazy hours. Um, and, you know, started at that point in time thinking, well, what, what can I do differently? Started investing in real estate uh, on the side, house hacked into a duplex. A lot of people just kind of started in residential. I did the same thing, started in small, uh, small houses, did fix and flips, did the wholesales, uh, did all that kind of stuff. I still own a portfolio of uh, residential properties. Started moving my way up to small multifamilies and then into passive syndications and then over to the active side. I love it. I mean, you've got a pretty awesome story of kind of where you came from, uh, especially being adopted, you know, coming from uh, South Korea. Like you said, that's impressive of what you've built up to now and, and the life that you've built for yourself. It sounds like you have a great family backing you as well. Uh, yep. Let's touch a little bit real quick though, when you went from being a lawyer, but which you still are, but moving into the real estate space, what really was it that triggered that? Where did that come from? Yeah. I mean, there are, there are a couple of aha moments. Um, I think one is, you know, I, I was closing all these big deals. I mean, I was working for big law firms as a real estate attorney. So we were closing, you know, hundred million dollar plus financings, hundred million dollar plus acquisitions and, you know, just meeting the operators face to face in person and seeing that they're regular people, just like you and me and, and, you know, just regular guys. And I was like, okay, well, I'm advising them on these deals and, and giving them advice, like, you know, what they need to do, things they need to be aware of, the liabilities, the issues. It's like, okay, well, I'm just as sophisticated, if not more sophisticated than them. I can do this. Um, so I started thinking I need to be on that side of the table. 
Um, and then the second one is really uh, just, I think a lot of people see this in their W-2 jobs. And I saw it from my perspective as, as a young associate was just seeing the older partners um, still plugging away, still going at it, still working just crazy hours, getting to the office before me, leaving after me, and not yeah. only billing those crazy hours, but they've got all the administrative tasks and educating younger attorneys and doing all these other things that they've got to do on top of just being an attorney. And it's kind of like, if I execute this business plan, if I do everything that I can possibly do right, and I'm going to end up like that um, with just, you know, work is life. And that's just not the way that I wanted to foresee my future. Seth, when we met, you told me you're out in San Diego now, right? If I recall yep. correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so West Virginia. Yeah. A little Diego. different. Quite the journey. <laughs> I've spent some time in Huntington. I've spent some time in okay. Beckley. I, I'm familiar okay. with that. So you mentioned that work ethic uh, and, and probably being from West Virginia, I'm not surprised to hear that you, your adopted or your father who adopted you was uh, a coal miner. Yep. Uh, just that experience, how did you make that transition to a place like San Diego and how did that help shape you? Yeah, um, I, I still remember when my dad took me down to the coal mines for the first time. I was, I don't remember how old I was, but I was probably like five years old, something like that. And because he didn't want me to do that. And a lot of a lot of people in West Virginia did that time. Those jobs are evaporating now. We don't have the coal mines like we did before. But at that time, that was those were some of the best jobs you can get. They make really good money doing it. It's a dangerous job, but they make good money doing it. Um, and he took me down into one of those elevators. It's just like you get on this ridiculously like rinky rinky dink shaft and you go down the elevator and you're going down forever 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 there's like one you know makeshift light lamp hanging from the elevator it gets darker and darker you're like when is this thing going to end you're it feels like you're going down for an hour and then it finally hits the bottom and you open up the door and what do you see absolutely nothing i mean you don't see anything it's just pitch black there is nothing to see um, and you turn on your, your headlamp and you look and it's just, there's nothing there. There's like, you know, some equipment, you know, some carts, things like that, but there's nothing there. And he's like, I, I go in here every single day, um, you know, for eight, nine, 10 hours and plug away. He's like, son, this is not what you want to do. It's like, I'm, I'm doing this to provide for my family, um, for you guys, but this, I, I don't want this for you. And I, I'll remember that for the rest of my life. I only went down there the one time, um, but that was just always instilled in me. And, you know, I, I've had a pretty easy life, to be honest with you, because my parents worked so hard uh, to provide for me. That's awesome. And our parents, uh, I think the way they shape us, it means so much to us. Uh, the specifics of that story really sounds like it was a life changing event for you. And, yeah. uh, it, you know, the journey has really been amazing. So uh, I'm actually partaking in one of your investments. Yeah, uh, here locally, locally to me at least, it, yeah. Dante and I are basically we're we're in three different parts of the country: <laughs> southeast, northeast, <laughs> west coast. Uh, pretty cool. But you guys have this great uh, opportunity up in Winston Salem. Uh, that was how I tracked you down. Yes, this yeah. all did happen recently. So uh, appreciate you coming on so quick. Um, I want to talk about the professional nature of. Uh, your your syndication business and you targeting uh it, it maybe targeting is too strong a word because uh i'm an engineer right you're an mm -hmm. attorney uh real important for us to be able to pool resources that's what syndication is all about uh how do you approach them and let them know what a wonderful opportunity this is versus asking them for money yeah, I think that's important. And I, I say that all the time because I think it's important to, you know, it, it seems like it's almost like a sales type of job, right? Like you're, you're trying to get people to, to buy your product. Your product is the syndication, the commercial property to invest in, but you can't treat it like that. You've got to treat it like it's it, what it really is. And it's an opportunity because folks like us don't grow up realizing we can invest in things like this. All we know are stocks and bonds and mutual funds and 401k because that's what our parents did. Um, that's, that's what we, you know, our employer tells us to do, you know, nine to five, so you're 65 and then you can retire and sip coconuts. I mean, that's just kind of what we're fed uh, from a young age, but 
you know, I, I think the times are changing. I think since the Jobs Act in 2012, which has kind of opened it up to other folks to learn about these types of alternative investments, um, you need to present it like an opportunity because that's what it is. It's an opportunity to diversify outside of the stock market. And you need to present it in a professional way because these deals are not cheap to get into. I mean, they have $25,000, $75,000 buy-in. So you do need to come with a, a certain amount of sophistication, a certain amount of um, you know, just present yourself well. And I think a lot of that comes with, you know, uh, the stuff that you don't think of when you get into this business. I mean, I, I launched a podcast. I've got websites that I paid a lot of money for. You've got to present yourself in your, your platforms and kind of your persona and brand in a very professional way. Uh, so that, you know, when people, people nowadays, they're going to Google you, they're going to look you up. They're going to see what you're about. They want to know before they invest $50,000 or a hundred thousand dollars or half a million dollars with you you know, what you're about, because that's a lot of money. I mean, that you know, we're talking about $50,000. I think we get caught up in, uh, you know, this world where we're like, oh, okay, this property is $5 million. This property is $20 million. So 50,000 is, is nothing, but that's, that's more than most people make in a year. It's, it's a ton of money. And that's why you've got to be, uh, you know, a steward of that money and, and understand what you're getting yourself into and treat it, uh, treat it with the utmost respect that it deserves. Yeah. I mean, that's so true. And, and the longer you're in this business, the more those zeros that get added on just don't seem like much because you're just so right. used to seeing these numbers every day, but you're so right. You know, we're look, you know, you look at a property for $10 million, you're like, Oh, it's only 10 million. That's a great deal. Right. Someone else is like, <laughs> what do you mean? It's $10 million. Like that's insane. Right. And yeah. to, to us, it's like, well, it's an investment. You know, this, this is what we do every day. We look at these numbers. And when you are asking for someone to take 50,000, $100,000 out of their savings, that's a big deal. That could be someone's salary, depending on what area of the country they're in or, you know, what job yeah, they have. Exactly. Um, it, Seth, being that you're an attorney, obviously there's a lot of documents and syndications that have to uh, be created and gone over, such as the operating agreement, subscription agreement, PPM. You know that lingo much more than the average syndicator will, I believe, because it's it's what you do. It's what you're trained for. Yeah. So what about five things syndicators need to know about their operating agreement? How important are those five things? Do you want to go over those with us? Yeah. There, you know, there's, there's a ton of things you need to know about your operating agreement. I mean, as a right. syndicator, you need to know the whole thing. I mean, I think mm -hmm. a lot of people will jump into this and just like everybody does, they, they kind of gloss over the legal documentation. It's kind of like, okay, well, I know the, the metrics of the deal. I know kind of like what's on my offering memorandum or the one page summary, but you really if you, you need to be prepared and ready to dive into the weeds with your investors, because there will be those investors. And a lot of them are engineers like you, DJ, that want to know ah. the specifics. They want to know the numbers, man. Like they, they want to know exactly what that uh, capital stack looks like, what the waterfall looks like. And the place to look for that is the operating agreement. I mean, it's not in the offering memorandum. It's not in the PPM. I mean, well, the operating agreement is usually an attachment to the PPM, but the controlling document is that operating agreement. And there, you know, there's certain things that you're going to get asked about on a regular basis, or you should, if your investor base is, you know, educated and they know the right questions to ask. Um, and I, I've kind of put together like five things that you, you definitely need to know and you need to know the answers to and where to point to in the offering agreement. Um, number one, and especially for me when I'm investing passively is, is capital calls, like know where the capital call information is. You know, those are the two dirty words we, we hope to never have to deal with in practice. Touch, touch on and, that real quick for someone that doesn't know what is capital call. Uh, capital call is where there's a, there's a cash flow shortage with the property. And unfortunately, the operators, as probably their last resort, have to turn to the investors that are already in the deal and say, hey, cash flow is short. We don't have enough money or enough reserves to continue on. We're going to get in trouble if we don't get more capital in the reserves. Uh, to run the property. So we need you to invest more money on a pro rata basis, um, which is really, when you think about it, that's, that's, you know, a nightmare. Cause it's like, okay, oh, yeah. you, you think, you think you invest 50,000 bucks and you're, you're done. You see it, see you later. That's my investment. If I want to invest more, it's going to be in a different deal or, you know, something like that. And then you get a call from the, the operator and they say, Hey, we need you to invest another $25,000 by, you know, two weeks or something. I mean, it's, it's a nightmare. So that's, it's the last, it's the, it's the last resort. So what are they looking for in this operating agreement? What should the, the capital call section be? What should they be looking for? What kind of uh, verbiage? It'll be, it'll be called, a, I mean, a capital call or something Understand like that. that, but I'm saying, yeah. what should they be looking out for? When you're looking at capital call, is there certain yeah. aspects of a capital call you should be looking at versus others? 
Yeah, I just need to see if it's, you know, if it's mandatory, you know, whether, whether, you know, they're holding a gun to your head, basically, like you have to do it or you're out of the deal. That's very rare. Um, or if it's at the discretion of the manager, if there's certain protocols that they have to go through before they do a capital call, like, okay, they need to, you know, take reasonable discretion to uh, find a, a supplementary loan or secondary loan or something like that. Or maybe it's up to a vote. It could be a, a capital call might be up to, you know, majority vote or a super majority vote, something like that. Um, just kind of know the metrics of that. I mean, you know, you're not going to, unless you're coming in with a, a massive amount of money, if it's, you know, a million dollar raise and you're coming in with the million dollars, you're not going to be able to negotiate the documents. So just know that. Right. But uh, from the, from the investor perspective, um, but just know, you know, from the uh, syndicator perspective, where the, those are at and be able to explain it um, in an in intelligent way to the investors so that they understand what they're doing. Because legally, the best thing is always to disclose, disclose, disclose. I mean, yeah. even if it's even if you're delivering bad news, it's better just to be 100% transparent, upfront. Let everybody know what they're getting themselves into. You know, we're all intelligent here. We can we can assess the risks for ourselves. Uh, but transparency is key because that's where you get yourself into, into trouble if you start uh, you know trying to cover things up. Yeah. Okay. So that's uh, number one where you're saying five things. What else you got on there? Yeah. Number two, that's probably the, the big one where you're just like, Oh my goodness, I don't want that to happen. Um, some other ones are distributions. You know, what, what does the waterfall look like? Who gets paid first? You know, what are the splits? Um, if there's different levels of, you know, membership, if there's a class A and class B, you know, who gets paid first, if they get paid on a pro rata basis, um, you know, just see who sits behind that debt position, who gets paid first, see if, uh, make sure your interests are aligned. Make sure the syndicator's interests are aligned with the investors. Um, you just have to really know that very well, your, your distribution structure and the waterfall. Um, the third one are fees. Know your fees. Know exactly, you know, make sure the fees match up with in, in the operating agreement, what they say they're going to be in the offering memorandum or the summary. Um, just know, you know, what, what you're going to get paid. And, and I rec highly recommend to syndicators to, again, align your interests with your investors as much as possible. I mean, you've, you, you've got to have somewhat of an acquisition fee uh, upfront, which doesn't necessarily align with your investors, but you've got to have that to, to get through, you know, all the work that you put in upfront, right. but going forward, you know, basing fees as much as possible on the performance metrics of the property is, is beneficial for everyone because you don't want that sponsor to, to close the deal. And because he's not getting paid, you know, an asset management fee or something, an ongoing fee based on the, the uh, performance of the property where they're just like, okay, well, I don't really care about this property anymore. I just want to get another acquisition fee. And they're just, and they're good at finding property. So they just find a deal, find a deal, find a deal. Um, Cause they want that, you know, a big payday up front. Um, so alignment of interest on the fees is, is really important. So know your fees. Um, the fourth one is liquidity. I mean, investors ask about that all the time, especially first time investors, because they don't realize how illiquid these investments are. That's, that's the right. one big one. Uh, the one big disadvantage of, of syndications and investing in these types of investments is, um, the liquidity issue. I mean, a stock you can just, you know, sell on, on your Robinhood act, Robinhood app, you know, in a, in a heartbeat, uh, these these deals you're tied up in three to five to seven to ten years, depending on the whole period, and you, you just need to have that conversation, especially with first time investors, because they don't necessarily realize how liquid it is. They're they're always like, well, what if I need my my money back out? What do I what do I do? It's like, okay, well, you can explain the process to them. Yes, there there is a possibility that you can, um, you know, sell your shares to somebody, or maybe the uh, the sponsors will buy your shares or something like that. Uh, but really, you need to come in with the expectation that you won't be able to get out of the deal until we till we actually sell it. Right. And then, okay. yeah. And then the last one are voting rights. Uh, and this one is probably the, the most variable one uh, that you'll see depending on, uh, you know, the size of the deal and things like that. And just see who's got what voting rights. I mean, it, it's in the best, you know, the attorneys that draft these documents are drafting them for the sponsors. So they're going to be in favor of the sponsors as much as possible. So typically you're not going to have a lot of voting rights as a passive investor, um, but just know what your rights are. So from the, the syndicator's perspective, you know, be able to articulate that and explain to them what their voting rights are and pretty much, you know, explain that they, they don't have that many. And again, unless they are, you know, you have a million dollar raise, passive investors coming in with a million dollars, 
uh, or the lion's share of the funds, then they can negotiate. That's one of the big parts that are negotiable are the, the voting rights and, and the control that they might have. Wow, those are some absolute gems coming from an attorney and a syndicator. Uh, Seth, I, I started down the real estate path by doing passive investing. Uh, I think one of Dante's favorite books, and Dante, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Brian Burke, a uh, well-known syndicator, wrote a book called mm -hmm. The Hands-Off Investor. So just a, a little tidbit there that goes over a lot of what Seth just talked about. Yep. But I've also heard uh, Brian talk on some podcasts, and he talks about uh, the syndicator or the sponsor and how important the integrity of the syndicator is. Can you just speak to that for a minute? Because, you know, we're talking about all the forensics and all the details behind the deal and everything. How yeah. important is that sponsor? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So, so Brian Burke, obviously one of the most intelligent guys in the industry, um, his book's incredibly detailed. It took me a while to get through it, to be honest with you, because it's so detailed. I mean, it, it's, so I it's like really it. detailed. Yeah, but it, it's, it's an incredible book. Um, but, you know, those guys will tell you, you know, you've, you've got to find sponsors that have made it through, you know, a downturn or two downturns, things like that, because they've, you know, they've done it, right? Because their group has done it. So they're going to tell you for sure, because that's, that's their product. That's their kind of their big selling point. Um, but I, I, I think there's a lot to be said about having a track record of success in, in something, a business, um, even right. multiple businesses. If, if you've been, there's, there's folks that you know, and you guys, you guys know them, everything they touch is gold, right? Like if they do this, they're successful at it. They can apply those same business, uh, those business skills to something else. And when you see them pivot and do real estate, they're successful in that too, because they're just good business people. Um, so I think that's really important. And I think, one really important thing is having a conversation with who you're investing with. So have that, that conversation. If you can do it in person, that's better. If it's just over a phone call or a zoom call, do what you can do. But you know, you have that gut feeling about someone, right? When you meet them, you're like, are they trying to hide something? Do they, are they being completely transparent? Are they answering my questions um, fully and completely? Or do you feel like they're, they're hiding something? I mean, you can get that from folks, especially in, in this world too, where people are, you know, bloviating a little bit about, you know, where they are in, in their journey. And, you know, it just kind of comes with the territory, but at the same time, you can get that feeling from someone having a half hour conversation, you know, where they're at, if they have your best interest in mind, if they really are going to, you know, be stewards of your money and your capital. Yeah, no, that's good. Something I wanted to dive into a little bit was uh, some deals that you've done. So you've got this deal coming up, this Litec deal. Uh, DJ is very interested in it. I actually showed it to him because I thought it was pretty cool. We love the Winston-Salem market. We've yeah. uh, been there a, a few times looking at deals. Let's talk about that a little bit. So okay. what? just give us a summary of the deal and what makes it attractive. Yeah. I mean, obviously the return metrics are, are crazy, but you know, that's not really what you should always look at. You should dive into the numbers, make sure that the, you know, the operators are, are good and have a track record and know what they're doing. Um, but the return metrics are great. It's 22.2% IRR, 9.5% uh, cash on cash, 7% preferred return. Those are all incredible metrics. Um, the, the market, especially, I mean, Winston-Salem in general, I love it. Um, you know, you're, you're going to see really good returns like those numbers that I just mentioned in markets like that compared to markets like, let's say, Charlotte and Raleigh that people are a little bit more familiar with. Because if you're seeing those types of returns in those markets or in like downtown Dallas or Denver or Austin or somewhere like that, you should probably check those numbers a little bit closer because those are the numbers you might have been seeing three or four or five years ago, something like that. Um, but if you're seeing those same numbers now, there's, there's probably a little bit of uh, issues with the underwriting or a little bit of, uh, a little bit of tweaking with the under, <laughs> underwriting. So I dig in right, a little right. bit, a little bit deeper. I mean, if you're seeing those in those, those primary hot markets, it, it just doesn't make sense. So that's why we started looking at Winston-Salem and some of these secondary, even tertiary markets. I mean, I like, you know, Tucson and Louisville and places like that where you can still get really good numbers and they still have really good uh, demographics and they have the, they have the population growth, they have the job growth, they have the, the job diversity, they have the, all the things you're looking for. They might just not, they might not be the markets that you think of right off the top of your head. Um, this particular deal is awesome too, because 
I did another Winston-Salem deal last year. It was 336 units in Winston-Salem, and I'm already seeing how well that property is performing. It's on the other side of town, but it's in a very similar type of neighborhood. So it's a very good, uh, you know, very good demonstration of what we'll be able to do with this property. So that was this this one was a no-brainer to jump on board with for me. Awesome. So, Doctor, when we did our market research and we're looking at different cities to go into or metropolitan areas, it was really interesting because if you look at history, the last five years, pretty much everywhere has been great. Sure. <clears throat> so how, how do we sniff out where the problem areas might be going forward? Because, you know, I, I'm, it would be great if that trend continues. We certainly hope it does. Everybody's successful. Yeah. What are some of the things that we should be looking out for now? Yeah, I mean, I think the the job diversity is one. So make sure those employers, there's not one major employer that has more than, well, we like to say 20% of the the jobs out there in that, in that particular market. So, you know, if, if for some reason they're susceptible to a downturn, that company or that industry, then it's not going to take the whole city down, down with them. Um, I've actually seen that happen in Charlotte because it's so tied to the financial industry. It's, it's more diverse now. It, it's fine now. But back in the day, it, it, it's just total, all the jobs, every single job is tied to the financial industry. So if the banks are having issues like they did in 2008, that whole city of Charlotte is having issues. Um, but since then, they've diversified. But things like that, like that, for example, is something where you don't want uh, all the employers in that market to be tied to the, the same industry. And you don't want one employer to, you know, provide all the jobs for that, that market. Yeah, no, that, that's a really good point. And something else you have co GPs on this deal. I was on the zoom call for your investor OM. You guys did a phenomenal job on that. I, I thought you guys were all really sharp. I thought the presentation was really sharp and that's why I mentioned it to DJ. Um, because regardless, the, if I'm looking to invest or not, if anything's going on and, that triad area or on the I-85 corridor, I'm going to be mm-hmm. present because I want to see what other guys are doing in the market. And, yeah. you know, just took a lot away from what you did there. Talk to us about these co-GPs. how did you guys find each other and, and how did you guys work something out to do a deal together? Yeah, we really met through, uh, I mean, I off the credit COVID, to be honest with you, because I feel like COVID has opened up the so many on, yeah to, to meet people on linkedin meet people online it's not weird anymore to, like, no it isn't <laughs> oh, oh how, how do you know that guy oh well, i know him from linkedin or i know him from facebook i know him because we had a zoom call it's like that's probably more likely than meeting somebody in person at this point and i think right, COVID, a conference or something yeah I, and i you know i feel some of my who i would consider good friends at this point I've never met in person, which is wild to say. If you would have said that last year, to be like, eh, you're a weirdo, man. You, you only know the guy from <laughs> LinkedIn. You guys are good friends. Okay, cool. Um, Whatever so yeah, you're talking met, about. <laughs> yeah. So we met on, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so we met on, on LinkedIn. Uh, we met through, and he, and uh, we met through um, the deal from last year. So the, the other Winston-Salem deal, because they were active in, in the Carolinas. And they knew about that deal because everybody knows, especially Winston-Salem, because it's not, you know, one of those markets like Charlotte where everybody's looking. Um, so we knew that he was looking there. Um, and I actually own a gym called Burn Bootcamp, which originated in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, so we go back to Charlotte every once in a while, a couple of times a year. I flew back there for uh, one of our corporate events and, and met Hemel uh, in person, had some drinks and, you know, met in person and really got to know the guy and, and, you know, did my due diligence on the track record, had the continual phone calls, got invited to, you know, other deals that he was doing and eventually felt comfortable enough to, to pull the trigger. So give us some, uh, I guess, overall details. How many about you, about your syndications, general partnership, uh, how many doors, how many deals, uh, total assets, uh, you know, trying to get a sense for the audience on, you know, what have you guys done? Sell yourself, yeah. Seth. Sell yourself, baby. <laughs> I I never even put up those those door numbers because they're so like they don't make sense, right? People are like, okay, well, I own four thousand doors. Well, and, and then I and I'll go through that too. There's even like another layer. Like I own four thousand doors, and then somebody will say, well, do you actually own those doors? Are those assets under management? That's usually the first question. And then right. after that, now I've been seeing people that say, you know, their assets under management but they're not really under under management. Like for instance, 
I'm a capital raiser. That's what I do. I'm a capital raiser and I, I do kind of an inside legal perspective for folks and kind of manage uh, the other attorneys on the deal. And those are the, you know, the value adds that I provide. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that I have any assets under management. I, I am not directly managing those properties. I'm not going to that property every single day and, you know, making sure that we lease that thing up and talking to the property manager every day. My job, my biggest job is to, to vet the sponsors and feel comfortable with how, who they are as people and who they are as business people and that they're going to be able to execute on the business plan and get comfortable enough with them and their track record to be able to feel comfortable enough to, to place my investors money with them. I love awesome. it. Yeah. And I, I stumbled a little bit getting out of the gate in real estate. Uh, the reason was I jumped around a lot with everything that you're doing, your syndication is focused. Your law practice is focused. Uh, that I think is a key uh, element to being successful in real estate. Know who you are, know what you're going to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, again, you got to be transparent about it. I mean, a lot of folks, they don't understand it, right? Especially like first time investors, when they're investing passively in a deal, they don't even know, you know, my role as, as a capital raiser. They just think that there's, you know, two or three or four or five people that are doing the deal, whatever. They, they don't understand the intricacies of, okay, well, maybe I'm partnering with a group that's going to actually execute the business plan. Um, and there's another group that might be doing the asset management because that's what they specialize in. They don't understand kind of the, the partnerships. But you know, roles that are assigned, kind of exactly. But you need to do your best to well, you need to do your best to explain it. I mean, it, it's a tough concept to, to grasp for somebody that's never done it before. Um, but at the same time, you know, you need to be transparent about it. And there's a lot of that stuff going around where it's like, you know, I own four thousand units, five thousand units, ten thousand units. And it's like, well, it, it's different. You know, <laughs> it, it varies greatly. I mean, there are guys that own you know a thousand units and they own you know hundred percent of that. And that that's meaningful compared to somebody that owns, you know, 10,000 units, but they own, you know, 1% of it or something. It, it, it's a, a huge gradient scale. So segue now to how important your network and your relationships are in your success. These deals aren't simple, are they? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, when you're getting started, I mean, you need to just networking is so important, right? Like you network. And especially, as I said, with COVID, you've had the opportunity to do it. You can network with investors, network with other syndicators, network with um, other commercial real estate professionals, brokers, all those folks, um, and just connect with them and just surround yourself with knowledgeable people. And it goes a long ways because everybody, uh, everybody's an expert at, at something. Um, so you can't be an expert at everything. So you know, know, know your real estate attorneys, know your SEC attorneys, know your CPAs, your property managers, contractors, you know, and, and all the syndicators on different levels um, and, and learn from them and also, you know, team up with them. I mean, use them as, use them as and leverage their, their skills and expertise. Yeah. And leverage the equipment we have available to us. Like DJ said, you know, we're in three different points in the country, but we're making stuff happen and we're adding value to people and bringing out uh, content that they can learn from. So I think that's yeah. huge. Um, yeah. Touching back on this deal that you're doing over in Winston-Salem, LIHTC, touch on that real quick to the listener. If someone's listening and they have no idea what LIHTC is, what it means or what uh, value it provides, touch on that for us. So it's a low income housing tax credit. Um, I actually, in my legal practice, used to represent banks when they gave out these um, these types of loans that were uh, that there were light tech deals. So what they are, they're, they're basically government tax credits or government incentives to uh, to operators, to developers, real estate operators, developers that uh, want to renovate or develop a, a property from the ground up. And, and they'll, they'll basically get these tax credits for a certain amount of time. Um, but you are locked into a contract, which basically says for the next 15 years, you're going to keep rents under a certain amount of the, you know, the median household income for the area. Um, so with respect to this deal, a lot of times you'll see LIHTC deals as a syndicator, as someone trying to find a deal, and you'll kind of turn, a, turn your cheek to it because you, you just assume that those rent caps are going to be low and that the property's rents have already kind of pushed to those caps and you're not going to be able to raise the rents. So there's no room to renovate, raise the rents, typical value add uh, strategy. 
Um, but this particular deal, the, the previous owners had not raised the rents for so long. Um, and the caps were for some reason so high that there was a 450 to $500 per month Delta between wow. what they, what we're charging right now compared to what we can charge under the light tech contract, which we're not going to raise the rents nearly that much. I mean, the market wouldn't actually even support it. So actually, essentially the light tech contract is not even a factor in this deal. Um, right. It's, it's not a factor. You're not going to hit that cap. Right. It's not a factor. And we also don't get you know, the benefit of it either. But that's why people don't like buying a light tech property because you don't really get any benefit from it. It's really just a, a hindrance to the rent that you can charge. So, the, but the hold's not five years for this deal. Explain how LIHTC now comes into the hold period. Right. Yeah, that, I'm glad you brought that up, DJ. You know my deal better than me. It's awesome because so typically you're going <laughs> to- Engineers. Typically, <laughs> typically, you know, you look at these deals and we can go into that later why I don't love that, but they're like five-year flips, right? They're, they're five-year flips. You're trying to get in there, renovate them, lease them up, uh, refi in two or three, year two or three, and then sell it at year five. Um, this particular deal, because the LIHTC contract expires in year nine, we are looking to exit in year eight because that provides an additional incentive for the next buyers uh, to come in and say, okay, well, if I buy this now, next year, that light tech contract expires and I can charge whatever I want on rent. It's not going to be uh, prohibited by any kind of uh, caps or anything like that. So it, it expands the buyer pool for sure, rather than selling it year five. And they're like, okay, well, I've got four more years in the light tech contract. I'm not going to be able to do, you know, let's say those, I don't know, class B plus renovations to be able to hit those light tech or go beyond those light tech caps because it's just they can't go above this certain number for the next four years so we're going to hold till year eight or that's the plan projected plan and, and knowing that the light tech contract expires in year nine now is there any reason you wouldn't hold till after the light uh, light tech contract expires bring those rents up a little bit therefore increasing the value of the property or are you looking to kind of leave some meat on the bone for the next buyer so it's easier to dispose of yeah, that's the idea is leaving meat on the bone for the next, the next group. It makes it easier to sell. I mean, that's why you see a lot of properties where like, you know, 25% or 50% or 75% of the, uh, the units are turned, but not 100% because you want to leave a little bit of meat on the bone for somebody to get, the, you know, a little extra value add, whatever it takes to, to sell the property to the next guy. Yeah, I mean, it's just going to make it easier to sell. Like uh, mm -hmm. there's one deal DJ and I are looking at and DJ's actually heading out there after this to go walk it and it's a light tech deal. And uh, it, it's pretty cool because uh, typically it's a 2011 vintage. It's beautiful. It's got all these amenities. And usually in that market, a deal would sell for like 100 to 120,000 uh, a door for the strike price yeah. or for the pricing guidance. And this is only about 50 to 55 a door. So something like that, you know, we see a lot of opportunity where we can come in, scoop up this asset at a cheaper price and then hold it until that light uh, contract expires, leaving yeah. that meat on the bone. I think it's a great strategy, Seth. Yeah. I mean, you can, you just have to get creative with it based on the length of the contract. I mean, it, depending on what you, your investors are willing to go and if your investors are willing to do, I don't know, a 15 year hold or something, something longer than market, right. Then you can hold till the end of the light tech contract and say, uh, I don't know, raise some more money at that point and do like that second round of renovations and bring the property value up even more. Like, I mean, it, you just gotta, I think you need to get people need to generally get more creative with light tech and more creative with deals in general, because I think we're kind of stuck in that five-year flip thing. I, I think most of Value us got in, yeah. right. I think most of us got into the real estate industry, whether it's through fixing and flipping or, you know, buying a single family house and renting it out um, to buy and hold it forever. And then we get kind of sidetracked with the, with the transactions. We get sidetracked with, you know, I got into a real estate thinking I'm going to, every property I buy, I'm going to hold it forever. And then I got learned about flips and wholesaling. I'm like, okay, well, I can make a quick, quick buck. You know, if I can make, you know, $40,000 on this, uh, this property, why, why wouldn't I just do it now instead of, you know, making a thousand dollars a month or whatever. Um, right. so, so I think you need to get more creative or we need to get more creative as an industry, especially in a multifamily industry where everything's just a five-year hold to, um, to see how we can hold these things forever. That's, that's what I want to do. You know what I mean? Hold it forever. If it cash flows and you can re keep refinancing these things down the line, 
you know, why not? Why put in all the effort to take that money out, put in something else five years later, do the same thing. If you can find something where you can get a return of your capital at year two, three, five, whatever it might be to refi, and then just stay in the deal forever, keep that cash flow going forever. I, I think that's the best long-term model. Um, I don't have the right solution for that yet, um, but I, I think it's something to, to think about for sure. I love what you're saying too about the creative aspect of making offers, of navigating your way through the deal. I really appreciate this Winston-Salem deal for how you guys managed the LIHTC agreement. Great find. Um, and you actually helped me because I said, boy, I like the deal so much. We've done a great job with our lending. We wanted to allocate some money. We had some available cash. But I said, geez, through this other company, I have additional money coming back and I'd like to put more into this deal. Yeah. And I, and the question was, can I replace myself in the deal? So this is something creative, never really thought about it before or anything like that. And yeah. the answer there was yes. You want to yeah. speak to that? Yeah. Yeah. And when you presented it to me, I didn't know the answer either. I was like, okay, I've never actually had this happen before. So let's find out. Engineers. <laughs> yeah. But it, that's why it's important to have different people that are experts in different fields on your team. Um, we were able to talk to uh, the real estate slash SEC attorney on the deal. And he gave us the green light and said, yeah, we can do that. No problem. We're staying within the guidelines. No issues there. No uh, you know tax implications or anything like that. We'll just uh, make it happen. So yeah, we're, we're off and running. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's really just uh, you guys did a great job with that. I uh, appreciate the the patience of working with us. Now, I, I do, though, want to get through. We have a few other things uh, on our list of, of topics here that we wanted to touch on. One of the things was your take on Wall Street versus Main Street. Can you just go over that? Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's funny nowadays, too, because because Wall Street is is on fire, right? Like you see the stocks and everything just going up and that's all you hear about in the news, you know, GameStop and, you know, <laughs> Tesla and all these, you know, these crazy things that are going on and everything's been going up, up, up. So it's tough to talk smack on it right now because, you know, if you're invested in it, you're doing well. But that's the thing is, you know, things don't always go as planned. These companies, I mean, GameStop in particular, I mean, they're not worth that much money. Like it's a roller coaster and trying to compare Wall Street to Main Street. I like to say it's, it's consistency. It's consistency. I mean, that's what you get out, out of Main Street. When you invest in, you know, one of these commercial deals or get invested in these commercial deals, you get consistent cash flow. I mean, I think there's the three pillars that I say are, are the cash flow that you get from the, that the property spits off. Uh, basically kind of like dividends for a stock. You get cash flow from the rent that comes in. Uh, two is the growth, the capital growth, your appreciation. So the, the big payday you're going to see on the backside whenever we refi or whatever we sell. And the third one are the tax benefits, which is the huge one, um, especially for, for W-2 earners that are just getting you know killed in taxes. Uh, you know, my podcast is focused on attorneys and some are focused on, other people are focused on raising capital from you know doctors and engineers and people with good W-2s. We're, we're the ones that get just destroyed by taxes. So that's the biggest thing because, uh, you know, you get those, you, you, you get those tax benefits from these syndications just as if you were directly owning, you know, a property yourself. So, and you don't get that from, uh, you don't get that from Wall Street. Yeah. I mean, all, all great points to touch on why real estate is the, the higher up of the two. Uh, DJ, was there any other topics you wanted to touch on real quick before we head into our other section of the show? Uh, yeah, golden handcuffs. <laughs> yeah, and that's <laughs> golden handcuffs, man. I, I talk about that all the time in my show too. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that term, but it's just the the idea that the more money you make, the more money you spend, right? Um, I, I almost went down that path. I did go down that path a little bit. I mean, as soon as I got uh, my first big law firm job, I mean, within a month. I, I bought a, a brand new five series uh, BMW. And I, but what's funny is I still own that BMW. I, I still drive it because I would never make that purchase now. I mean, I don't know at this point I might, but it, for the last few years, I would not. Um, but that's how you get tied down. You get tied down to that car payment. You get tied down to, you know, the big house payment. Um, I like to tell this story because it's, it's crazy. It's some of the worst financial advice I've ever been given. There, there are, was a partner at my law firm that said, you know, when I'm looking at houses, I ended up buying a duplex, which was an investment property. 
but he was like, don't buy that duplex, buy the biggest house that you can afford because you're going to grow into that. And you're going to grow into your salary. Your salary is going to keep getting bigger and bigger. So even if you can't really afford it now, you're going to be able to afford it later. That's the craziest advice I've ever heard. And that's actually a very common thing for partners to tell uh, young associates when they're, whenever they're kind of, you know, starting to make good money and they're house shopping, buy a bigger house than you need, buy a bigger house than you can really afford right now. Cause next year, guess what? You're going to be making more money. Well, that's not actually true. You could have, there could be an economic downturn, especially at big firms. They'll cut you in a heartbeat. I mean, if, if, you know, like I was in the CMBS lending world for a while. So that is, that's a roller coaster in itself. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they'll, they'll cut you in a heartbeat. And it's like, okay, well, you go from making $200,000, $250,000 a year as a young associate to making nothing and being jobless. So if you haven't saved up some money and you have you know, your $600 a month uh, BMW and you have your $3,000 a month house and you've got you know, nice suits and all that kind of stuff, those are the golden handcuffs and you're stuck and you've got to scramble quickly to find the next job and find the next paycheck. And you eventually, you just get locked down to that job you lock yourself in, even if you become unhappy down the road, what happens is you can't leave. You, you can't leave because your bills are there. You make a lot of money, you spend a lot of money, now you're locked into your job. And even if you're unhappy, you're, you're stuck there. And I think that's why a lot of, a lot of attorneys and, and doctors are some of the unhappiest people on the planet. So your website, lawcapitalpartners.com, uh, and in your speaker notes, you talk about alternative investments. Uh, so just for clarity for, for me and hopefully for the audience, yeah. <laughs> uh, alternative investments, are they the syndications or is there something else that you're doing? Yeah, alternative investments are really anything outside of your traditional investments like the stock market, index funds, mutual funds, things like that. I mean, alternative investments could include uh, precious metals and commodities, um, Bitcoin. I mean, anything that's not kind of that typical traditional investment. I'm not saying go invest in all those things. I invest really almost exclusively in real estate. I have, I have my own small business as well, and I'm involved in a couple of startups, but for the most, even those startups are real estate related. I mean, I, I've gone all in on, on real estate and tried to diversify within the real estate realm. Right. And that's really my question. I wasn't sure if you guys were making a play on anything else there, or was it real estate focused? So, so with that, Dante, why don't we go through our, our wrap up section and our questions? Yeah. Awesome. So we're going to go over to the curious cues. These are some questions we ask all of our guests and we'll get your answers on them. First question is favorite podcast you enjoy listening to besides your own and ours. <laughs> <laughs> I like that caveat. Um, I would say uh, cash flow connection with Hunter Thompson. That's my favorite. Nice. Every, everything, everything that guy says is gold. Yeah. He's got a good book out too. Really good book. Yep. I suggest that to people if they want to go grab that favorite book. Speaking of books, what is your favorite book you enjoy reading? Yeah, I don't want to, I, I say Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'm sure everybody says that because it is such a, a game changer. I mean, the first time you read it, you're like, whoa, so whoa, simple, but just, it just changes your life. Um, but I would say, you know, most recently I read Influence and then there's another one called uh, Persuasion or Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. Those were both very interesting, which just kind of the psychology of thought and, um, you know, just how people think and how people can be persuaded from both sides of the, of the, of the equation, whether or not you're trying to, you know, talk somebody into your side of the perspective or on the other side, you can be aware of what someone else is trying to do to you. Yeah. I, I like that. I'll check that out. Biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome. Man, I had a, a couple of them when I was flipping. Um, and honestly, I've got one right now that I'm finishing up in Charlotte. It's been a pain, man. But uh, so, so one in, in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, actually Lakewood, which is west of Cleveland, we had a flip that lasted almost two years. So two years to renovate that's, this. That's a buy and hold at that point. No more capital right. gains for short term. <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely a nightmare. We changed contractors four times. It was nuts. Well, three times, four contractors. Insane. I mean, you can imagine the cost associated with changing contractors and all that, but that's, you know, that's the, that's the beauty of multifamily and bigger commercial properties is you're not dealing with those lower level contractors, the lower level property managers, folks that um, aren't quite as professional as, as some of the folks that we're dealing with nowadays with the commercial properties, you know, the, the bigger you go, uh, the, the more professional that the vendors get. So that that's a huge advantage. And since I've been there from the, the bottom up, um, I, I can see the, those advantages 
for sure. But it's crazy. We ended up keeping that property instead of selling it. And I still own that property and it makes, it nets like a thousand dollars a month. It, it's crazy. So we, we ended up there making money on it, but man, it was, it was a money pit when we, <laughs> we a were hurdle for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I favorite non-real estate related hobbies. What are you doing in your free time? Man, everything's real estate related nowadays, but uh, right. I try to yeah, I try to get out there and surf, man. I just try to stay active. I mean, San Diego, that's the beauty of living in San Diego is you can be active and be outdoors year round. Um, I, I try to surf. I'm a terrible surfer. I thought I would be better at it. I grew up snowboarding and thought I could just switch to, to surfing. It'd be really easy, but it's been super difficult. Uh, but it's fun to get out there, man. It's relaxing. Paddle out past, past the white water and you're just sitting out there and watching the sunset. It's beautiful. Um, Again, just try to get outdoors as much as possible. Did a did a 12, uh, 12 mile hike Sunday uh, with with the folks from the gym, so that was fun. Uh, just try to stay outdoors as much as possible. That's great. Sounds awesome. And newbie advice. So, what advice would you give to someone that's looking to get started in the business? Get a mentor. That that's yeah. the best way to to accelerate. I I was very stubborn in what I did. I think that's why I had issues with the the fix and flips to begin with. Was just because okay, I'm like all right, I'm just gonna jump in. I can do this. This seems simple enough. Um, but you've got to you've got to know the business before you can you know execute it yourself. So, getting a mentor or whether that's paid or not, I mean, find somebody that's doing what you want to do and they're doing it successfully, and and either emulate them or ask them for guidance or pay them. I mean, whatever it takes, it's just going to accelerate your, your learning curve exponentially. Yeah. I hear you on that. All right, Seth, put in the plugs, where can people uh, reach out to you, listen to the podcast, all that good stuff. Yeah, man, go to passiveincomeattorney.com for the podcast and the blog and all that stuff. Um, I've also got the, the cash flow calculator for download. If you're a passive investor, you can put in all of your, you know, what you think you're going to invest for the next five, to well next year or 20 years and it'll kind of give you a uh, accumulation of, of the returns you might see so you can kind of actively see how you're going to buy back your time piece by piece and you can get that at intelligentpassiveinvestor.com love it uh dj thank you brother for coming on my as my co-host this week and uh seth thank you so much for being our guest you did a phenomenal job yeah thanks guys really appreciate it Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.